Welcome to the Radiant Podcast. We are so glad you joined us today. This podcast features messages, interviews, and discussions from Radiant Church located in Seneca, South Carolina. For more information about Radiant, visit RadiantChurchSC.com. Here's today's episode. Welcome to Radiant Church. My name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor. We're so glad you could join us today from wherever you're watching or listening from. If this is your first time joining us, go to RadiantChurchSC.com and click I'm new. If you fill out that short form online for us as a way of saying thank you, we're going to donate $5 to one of the nonprofits that is listed. We're starting a new teaching series here today, which is going to take us through the middle of May and lead right into our Roman series, and it's called Kings and Kingdoms. Now, in it, we're going to be taking a look at important lessons from both the kings and kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Now, I'll tell you, there is far too much good stuff here for us to fit into just a few weeks. So we're going to have to leave this one open and come back to it later down the road with more stories and more lessons. But one of the great aspects of this series that we're going to be in is it's going to take place entirely in the Old Testament. Now, I love the New Testament, but man, the Old Testament is really something. It is raw and real for sure. And while we're going to be pulling some lessons and takeaways from the Old Testament, I do want to throw this out there. The Old Testament is not meant to be a moral or ethical guidebook. It's filled with stories and histories and poems that weren't necessarily put together to serve as examples for you on how to live, okay? You can certainly do that in multiple places, but the intent for the majority of the text here is to record history. You're getting an inside look at the events and people in ancient Israel. Now, there's a little different you know, from the New Testament, right? Because in the New Testament, you have all kinds of instructions for godly living from both Jesus and the Gospels and letters from guys like Paul and James. The New Testament tends to have a more practical feel to it, but you can't get to the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. You really have to have both. So we're in the Old Testament, and let me just kind of set up where we're going to go today. Israel's first king is a guy named Saul. He's died, okay? After a lengthy stay in exile, a man named David, the same one who who killed a giant Goliath, he returns and he ascends to the throne. Now, God had removed his favor from Saul and he anointed David as the next king several years earlier, even though he's only the second king to sit on the throne. Uh, David's reign, though, can easily be seen as the start of Israel's golden age. His son Solomon's going to bring it to its zenith before the kingdom's torn apart after his death. We'll talk more about that that at a later point. Uh, David is called a man after God's own heart by the Lord himself. That's like the best compliment ever, right? Uh, He wrote numerous songs in the Psalms. He was very expressive in his worship and dedication to the Lord. And without a doubt, he was as strong as he was sensitive. But those emotions got him into trouble a few times, including a story we're going to be looking at here today. We're in springtime right now when this is being recorded, okay? And soon it's going to be summer. And what happens in summer? We throw all the normal routines out the window, don't we? Or at least we kind of tamp them down a little bit. Uh, why? Well, because that's summertime is that excuse not to do things the way we do them from August through April. Like all the things we're supposed to do kind of take 
take a back seat when summer rolls around. We get a little lazier, we get a little more laid back, right? Uh, but I don't think we behave only that way in, in summer. I think we have moments like that in our lives that pop up from time to time. Moments where we find ourselves using excuses not to do what we're supposed to do. I, I know that I'm supposed to take time for my wife, right? But I really want to go fishing with the guys this weekend. I know I'm supposed to do my job this way, uh, but that way makes so much more sense to me. Most of our mistakes in life, they come out of these moments where we know what we're supposed to do, uh, but this selfishness just begins to kind of creep in a little bit, and it throws us off our routine, and we tend to think that what we're doing is, you know, it's harmless. Like, fishing doesn't hurt anybody. Uh, maybe the fish. <laughs> doing your job uh, the way you want to instead of being what's being asked to do, what does it harm the process or the company, you know? But as we're about to see with King David, allowing our selfish desires, whether they're big or small, to overtake us can actually harm the community that God has put us in. Now, before we jump into the story, I do want to walk you through a little change in perspective, okay? There's a reason I'm going to do this, because I think as you can see, or at least you can try to see, uh, this story through a different cultural lens in David's day, it could change how you view, not just this story we're in today, but also change just you know, the, the way you view the Bible, period. So in America, we see the world as, as black and white and there's no gray. Our perspective on right and wrong stems from this idea that if I do something wrong, I'm guilty. If I don't, I'm innocent. And everything from government to ethics to family codes in our homes are all built in this idea and they're internalized and focused on the individual. So if you know it's wrong to lie, and you do it anyway, what happens? Well, you're bothered by the fact that you lied, even if no one knows about it. Why? Well, because our family code says lying is wrong. You feel bad because you broke the code. You're guilty, right? If you're a Christ follower, you feel even more guilt because, well, that wrong goes against God's code. Kind of a double whammy there. <laughs> but in ancient Israel, in the era that David lived, uh, things were not that cut and dry. And that's because in the East, it's not about the individual. It's really all about the collective, the clan, the village, the nation. Eastern peoples have a different perspective than, than those of us here in the West. They don't see the world as black and white. They see it as gray. And what matters are the expectations of others. And these expectations comprise what's right and wrong, making it much more fluid than absolute. And if you lie, it's only wrong if your cultural expectations in the community are that you don't lie. Well, in the case of ancient Israel, God is the one who set the cultural expectations for the people. This is where we get the Ten Commandments and other laws that God lays out in Leviticus. That's one of the features which really sets Israel apart from many of the nations surrounding them. Instead of elders or the clan setting expectations, God is the one who does it. Now, there's this understanding that your actions, good and bad, they have a ripple effect across the entire community you belong to. So if you fail to meet these expectations, then shame and dishonor, it's brought upon you and your family, even to unborn generations, because your actions harm the community. And, and that's the culture the Bible was written in. It's the culture which really takes place in our story here today in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Look at this. 
In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, this first verse in the passage is pretty important. In spring, the author says, when kings normally go to war, right away we're told David's not where he's supposed to be, doing what he's supposed to do. Already, there's this idea of honor and shame being introduced because David, according to this author here, is not acting like a king, doing what a king is supposed to be doing. He's actually playing with his own honor here by staying home instead of leading the fight. And so David here stays behind. Behind. Look at verse number two. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed, and as he was walking on the roof of his palace, he looked out over the city, and he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. And he sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, well, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her, and she had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period, and then she returned home. Look at verse number five. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, uh-oh, right? She sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. And then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And so Joab sent him to David. Some of you have heard this story before, and I'm sure you've heard it from, from the point of view that, that this woman named Bathsheba, she, she did come nothing wrong whatsoever. Like she was in, in, in the right, you know? And, and I'll admit, I've always kind of been in that camp until a few years ago. And I realize it's not anywhere near popular in our, our current cultural environment today, particularly in America, uh, to say what I'm gonna say here in a moment. Um, but what if that's exactly not true? Like, can we just be open-minded enough to consider that perhaps Bathsheba is just as guilty as David here in the story? Consider this, for instance. Women did not bathe in public as she was doing. Not then, really not now either, right? Uh, what she's doing is unusual because it wasn't the middle of the night or early in the morning. It was in the afternoon. Obviously, she can be seen. Her house is, is so close to the king's balcony, David can tell how beautiful that she is. And this gives us two really important clues about both her and Uriah. So first, uh, you know, Uriah can't be seen as just any soldier. He's, he's got to be someone with a high rank. And in fact, he does have high rank. 2 Samuel 23, verse 39 lists Uriah as one of David's mighty men. These were the men who were fiercely loyal to him, who fought beside the king as he uh, ran from Saul. Uh, and the, the fact that he was a part of this elite group confirms his home was in very close proximity to the palace as evidence from the story. Then second, considering his late in the afternoon, that David has stayed behind instead of joining the army to fight, that the proximity of the house is in full view of the king's balcony and close by. It's very difficult to overlook the possibility that Bathsheba went out to take a bath hoping the king would notice her. She knows what she's doing, and if she was hoping the king would take notice, well, her, her plan worked. David has a desire. Now, it's a selfish desire to be sure, and he gives into it. And he sends messengers to Bathsheba, and by doing so, he's now made his private selfish desires very public because 
people talk, right? You know, I mean, we have small communities all around us. We know people talk, nothing stays hidden. Certainly those messengers and soon the entire palace is gonna be talking about this beautiful woman coming to the king's chambers. And eventually the whole city will start talking about it as well. Now, because David is the king, you know, he can do what he wants. It doesn't matter that Bathsheba is somebody else's wife. Technically, because she belongs to a Hittite, David could actually purchase her from Uriah. Jewish law would have allowed that. And, and what David uh, really has done at the moment has, has not seemed entirely wrong by the community. I mean, he's the king. You know, they kind of expect that from kings. There's no dishonor, at least not yet. There's an important lesson, though, we have to take away before we move further into the story, and that's this. The selfishness, man, selfishness is messy. David's selfish desire is going to become well-known to everybody, and it's, it's going to get even messier because Bathsheba sends a message to David saying, oh, man, I'm sorry, I'm pregnant. Uh, now, shame and dishonor, they really come into the picture now. You don't want an illegitimate kid if you're the king. How do you save your honor? You have to make things even messier. So David sends for Uriah, hoping to convince him to sleep with Bathsheba so Uriah can claim the pregnancy and, and, and save David's honor here in the process. But there's a problem with that. Kings don't just summon soldiers home from an active war to hang out, okay? So Uriah is going to get suspicious. Why, why am I going back home? And he's eventually going to hear about what David did, either on the way to Jerusalem or when he gets there. The rumor mill is going to be churning. Do you see how the mess kind of starts to grow a little bit? You know, when we act on our selfish desires, we, we can't clean the mess up on our own. In speaking about temptation and how it grows, James 1.15 tells us this. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it actually gives birth to death. If it isn't dealt with, sin will get even messier and messier and messier until it's so messy and so big, it destroys. It destroys a person completely, robbing them of their purpose, bringing them further pain and hurt and destruction to the people all around them. David thinks, you know, that he, he has the right plan, but his plan soon begins to fall apart. In fact, once Uriah arrives at the palace, he refuses to go home. Instead, he chooses to sleep at the entrance to the palace with the king's servants and guards. So for Uriah, it's, it's dishonorable to go home and sleep with his wife while other soldiers are fighting and losing their lives on the battlefield. And this is much more important than we think because remember, like we don't see the world the same way they did, right? Like honor and shame don't mean as much to us here in America, but it was everything in ancient Israel. And so Uriah's actions are publicly shaming David, the king of Israel. And here's the thing, David knows it. The mess just keeps growing because David's gonna up the ante here. He wants to know why Uriah didn't go home. Listen to Uriah's response here in, in chapter 11, verse 11 here. Uriah replied, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are coming in the open, uh, camping in the open fields. How can I go home uh, to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear I would never do such a thing. Boy, he's got some guts, doesn't he? He shames David in three different ways, okay? Three different ways. First, 
he makes it a point to show that everybody was where they're supposed to be. The warriors are fighting. Even the ark, which is the sacred symbol of God's presence dwelling with Israel, it's in the camp with the people. Hey, God's with us, he's saying, right? Second, he refers to Joab, not the king, as his commander. It's another reminder to David. He's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. Third, his refusal to sleep with his wife shows he might even know what's going on. He might be able to read between the lines a little bit, so to speak, and he's not going to play ball with David, king or no king. And so now David's in a pretty tough spot. He's got to keep his honor. Uriah's not, he, he's not going to play the game the way he wants him to. So what do you do? Well, the mess gets bigger and the mess gets messier. He gets an idea. He sends Uriah back to the battlefront with a message for Joab. Joab is to put Uriah at the front lines where the fighting is the most intense and then pull back so Uriah will die in battle. And if that's not bad enough, David knows a good soldier is going to follow orders so Uriah won't read the note meant for Joab. David David makes Uriah carry his own death sentence with him to the commander. Do you see how far and how low David's gone? This hero, this man after God's own heart, is so deep in a mess of his own making, he doesn't resemble anything like the person that God pulled out of the sheep pasture. The plan works, and the author wants us to know it wasn't just Uriah who dies when the army pulls back. He points out in verse 17 that several other Israelite soldiers were also killed. And so in trying to cover his own mess up, it just got a whole lot worse. There were other men who had nothing to do with this ordeal who lost their lives all because a king was desperate to cover up his sin. This mess brings so much shame. God will have no choice but to confront David. Do you see how one selfish desire grew into such an uncontrollable mess that it not only impacted the people involved, but an entire nation? Our selfishness is not just messy. It destroys community because it affects people around us. It can even affect people we'll never meet. I, I doubt David knew all the soldiers who fell beside Uriah. I doubt he knew the families who would mourn for them. And when news got out, and trust me, it would have, that they died because the king made a mess of his cover-up and even deeper pain would have been inflicted in their lives. David's selfish desire created a destructive mess and a ripple effect that spread across an entire nation. And so eventually God sends a prophet named Nathan to confront David with his sin. And Nathan, Nathan confronts David in a, in a very clever way. He invokes a story about a sheep which he knew would cut right to the heart of this former shepherd turned king. And so the good news is, is David does repent and God does forgive him, but it did cost him because sin always has a cost. God tells David what he did privately, the Lord's going to make sure it's done publicly. And so David would go on to have two sons he would lose in two different rebellions. And as we're going to see later, the kingdom he, he ruled would be torn apart from his line. Three separate civil wars or insurrections come about from one man's selfish desire on that fateful afternoon. Selfishness is messy, so how do you guard against it and the mess that it can bring? Well, first, you serve under the leadership of God. Much like the warriors serve their king, you trust God and His will for your life. You do things you're supposed to do. You go the places you're supposed to go to to expand the kingdom of God and bring those who are in darkness into God's marvelous light. Why are we called a radiant church? Because we want to bring people from darkness into light. 
What stops us from setting people free and advancing God's kingdom? Boy, there's a lot of scapegoats that are out there, the government, the culture, whatever you want to say, but really the only thing that can stop it is us. We're the cause. It's those summer moments we have, the selfish desires where we stop doing what we're supposed to do and we don't go where we're supposed to go because, well, it's too much work. It's a lost cause. It's too much like the world, you know? Like we live in those moments. And when we do that, we, we lose our calling and we lose our value in the community. And that's not who God designed us to be, man. God designed us to be people with a purpose. And it's our job to carry out that purpose with others with our community. We need each other. You know, there, there's a slogan, we're better together. It's, it's probably been overused in recent years, but the truth is, is it, it's not cheap. It's 100% it's, it's accurate. It's very true. I believe it, you know, that it's, that it's true. I believe we're better together because God's design for us is to do life with other people, to be in community and to be uh, in community. Here's the thing, you have to be open to accountability. We need accountability because we need people who can call us out. You know, but to receive accountability, you have to be somebody who has a, a teachable spirit. Some of you are, are, are lifelong learners, man. You're humble. You're easily teachable. And because of that, there's no limit to what God can and what God will do through you, okay? It means God's going to promote you. He's going to use you in powerful ways because of your teachable spirit. It also means you're going to carry the ire of jealous eyes. Others are going to want what you'll have. But God doesn't give people who aren't teachable positions responsibility. And so some of you today, you fit that mold. In fact, you believe your role is to teach everybody else but yourself, right? Like no one can hold you accountable because you've become offended when someone calls you out. You get super defensive of your actions and your viewpoints, but you need others to teach you. You need community to honor you, to celebrate you, and yes, to shame you in a loving, gentle way when you're wrong. By the way, that's one of the reasons why I think groups are so important. At Radiant Church, we, we have several of them. We, we believe you should be in community. Now, what if David was where he was supposed to be? What if the author had started out with the story in the spring when kings went out to war, David led the army to fight the Ammonites, and he fought alongside Joab and Uriah, and he expanded Israel's kingdom. I know we can't rewrite the story. We can't go back and change history. I understand all that. But what if you, what if you could rewrite your script? What if you, in the time of your busyness, in the time of your family and kids, in the time of political and social unrest, what if, what if you and me and together, we, we expanded God's kingdom? We fought against darkness. We didn't allow selfish desire to create destructive messes and destroy community. No, like, what, what if we did what we're supposed to do, and we went where we're supposed to go, and God's kingdom grew. May we not be like David. May we not give into the wrongful desires of our hearts. May we not give into the selfish desires and motives. May we be where we're supposed to be, doing what we're supposed to do, not as individuals, but as a community of Christ followers. May we together help other people know God, find freedom, and discover their purpose so they can make a difference for Him. You're watching and listening right now. You say, Pastor, I'm, I, I'll be honest, my whole life, is, is, an, is described in this manner. Like I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing. Uh, I'm in places I shouldn't be and, and I, I need to change. Here's what I wanna do for you. I wanna pray that you'll experience God's what we call salvation, where God will set you free. 
It's about making Christ Savior of our lives, freeing us from our sin, our wrongs, the things we're not supposed to be doing, right? And then making Him Lord of our lives, where He guides us and directs us. He leads us to where we're supposed to be. We're going to say that prayer here in a second. I want you to repeat after me in your own words, wherever you happen to be watching and listening from. I'm going to model that prayer, but I want you to say it through your own words, your own heart. And then I want to pray for those of you who are believers, man, that perhaps, you know, you're already a follower of Christ, but this describes you. You're like David, man. You're just, you're having one of those summer moments in your life right now. And I want to pray for renewal in your life today. So Father, I thank you for those who are watching and listening. They say, Pastor, I just, I, I, my whole life needs to change. And so Lord, I pray that right now they would begin to open their hearts and to make you Savior. In fact, you're going to say a prayer like this, Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry for my sin. Will you forgive me for the wrongs that I've done? I realize that I've, I've done things I'm not proud of, things that, that, that have gone against your standards and your ways. And the thing is, is I, I need a Savior today. I need someone to save me. I need someone to get me out of this rut. This, this, I'm, I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing, going places I shouldn't be going. And so I'm saying, Lord, I need you today. Will you save me? Will you forgive me? of my sin and my wrong. Be my Savior. But don't just be my Savior. Be my Lord. Guide me and direct me. I, I don't want to call the shots. I've lived my own way. I don't like how that turns out. I want to live your way. God, you lead me where I'm supposed to go. Lead me to what I'm supposed to be doing. Lord, help me uh, to be someone that you've designed to be, to, 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 to live out the full potential of the life you've created for me. Father, I, I, I want to commit myself today to serving and following you and obeying you. And I'm going to work hard at doing that. Be my Savior and be my Lord. God, for those who are Christians today and they realize they're like David, that's, they're, they're in a summer moment right now, doing things they shouldn't be doing, going to places they shouldn't be going, maybe literally, maybe metaphorically, but, but nevertheless, that's kind of where they're at right now. God, I pray for renewal and revitalization in their life. Give them, God, uh, this sense of, of forgiveness if they've, if they've done some things that are wrong. Lord, uh, restore and revitalize their heart and their soul and their passion for you again. Uh, Father, I pray that you would just break them free in this kind of summer moment that they're in, Lord, and, and get them back on track living and through with purpose, God, for what you've called them to do. May they impact people around them. May there be a ripple effect of hearts and lives that they can change because of your power and your spirit and your glory. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or would like to reach out to us, you can do so by emailing us at media at radiantchurchsc.com or visit one of our social accounts on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes and give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform that you listen to. We hope you have an amazing rest of your day.